Hello, this is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to The Called Out Cafe. This current series of podcasts is titled The Biblical Worldview of the Spirit Realm. This is episode number six. I recently went through the material which is serving as the basis for this series with a Bible study group I've been meeting with for a few years now. This group is made up of longtime Christian brothers. I experienced a broad range of reactions and feedback. I've been told that the stuff I presented caused a major paradigm shift by more than one. And some came to a new understanding of things, at least some things, only after coming along kicking and screaming. What I came to realize is that although everything I have been and will be talking about is contained in plain sight in Scripture, the individual dots, or important topics, have not been focused on for at least the last several hundred years in the church, nor have many of them ever previously been connected for many. Before I can connect many of the dots so you can start seeing the way they fit together in God's story he's telling, we first need to establish what the dots even are. In this episode, I'll be covering two more dots. The first is that of a group of created spiritual beings known as the Sons of God. There are several ways that the term, quote, son of, unquote, is used in the Old and New Testament. Son of can mean various things. It can refer to common characteristics, the nature of something, or its attributes between the figurative parent or father and the figurative son. It can refer to a cause or an influencer, the parent, and the effect or the influenced, the son. It can refer to an individual, like the son, who is part of a group, like the figurative parent or father, like someone is a son of Israel. But in every case, it refers to someone that comes from, is created by, or descended from the original somebody source. What we're concerned with here is only the term son of God and the meaning it has in the Bible. Sometimes the term Son of God is used as a comparison or to point out a similarity, such as a case in 2 Samuel 7.14, where it compares David's son Solomon to being not actually, but like a son to God. God tells David that Solomon may come from David's body, but he would be like a son to God. Many ancient cultures, including in the Near East, use the term Son of God denoting an office or ranking for positions such as kings or supreme leaders on the earth. This was a case in Egypt and likely has something to do with the imagery found in Exodus 4.22, where Israel is referred to as God's firstborn son. This is an obvious figurative use of the term, since it's not an individual the scripture is referring to, but an entire people, the people of Israel. In essence, The people of Israel hold the same status with Yahweh as being like a firstborn son. God directly chose Israel from among all the nations and set them apart as his people. This is extremely important imagery as we know that Jesus, also God's first and only begotten son, can be considered the second Israel. More on that later. This imagery of Israel being the firstborn also became important as God sentenced all the firstborn sons of Egypt to die while he saved his own firstborn son, Israel. This is like God saying to Pharaoh, I don't care what you think your status as firstborn son of the gods is, Pharaoh. I'm going to kill all of your firstborn, but my firstborn, Israel, will be fine. The Hebrew word for God whether contained in the term the sons of God or the most high God, is Elohim. Whether Elohim refers to the most high God, Yahweh, or a son of God, a single spiritual being created by Yahweh, or the sons of God, plural, is determined in context. The first time we see the term for the sons of God or the Bain Elohim is in Genesis chapter 6. 
We'll come back and talk about this passage later when we talk about the fall of various angelic beings, and even more specifically, the Nephilim. But for now, I'm just pointing out the use of the term, sons of God. This is from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be limited to a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. In this passage, we can observe the differentiation of the sons of God from the daughters of man, implying that at least there are two separate lineages involved, one of them belonging to the race of men, the other separated out from the race of man and being attributed not as being separate godly race of men, but only as being sons of or direct descendants of God. The next place we see the term son of God is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is from what's called the Song of Moses. God had just told Moses he was about ready to lie down with his fathers, or die. And after he dies, that the people he's chosen for himself will rise up and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering and forsake him. So God told Moses to write this song down and to use it to teach the people. God told them that when they experience evil and trouble in the future, that this song will confront them. So the truths in this song were important in understanding why they were facing evil or would be facing evil and trouble. I'll start with verse 7. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 to 9. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he'll show you, your elders, and they'll tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples, according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. That's from the English Standard Version of the Bible. That translation depending on where in the Bible we're talking about, depends a lot on the Septuagint. Other translations that depend more on the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Novum Testamentum Gracie, excuse the pronunciation, put it the following way. This is from the American Standard Version, the same passage I just read. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the children of men, He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For Jehovah's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. The Greek words found in the Septuagint that the ESV translates as the sons of God in this passage are englon theou, literally meaning angel or messengers of God, rather than sons of God as the ESV translated. Well, this is a big difference. Which is it? Sons of God, like the ESV says, or children of Israel, as stated in the ASV. This is going to require getting down in the weeds a little bit, so please bear with me. There are several advantages of chiefly considering the Septuagint translation to normally be superior over the Masoretic text. So, the ESV uses the Septuagint in this this part of Scripture. And the ASV is relying on the Masoretic text. So, while translating the scriptures into the Greek Septuagint in the 3rd century BC, the Council of 70 or 72 Hebrew scholars had access to less tainted Hebrew scriptures than those documents that make up the Masoretic texts. Not to say that they're totally unreliable, but the Masoretic texts we have today were compiled sometime around the 8th or 9th century A.D. Secondly, the 70 Hebrew scholars not only translated the text, 
back in the 3rd century BC, but they also interpreted the text as they translated, as every translator does, according to what they believed to be a proper understanding of what they were translating. This gives us a snapshot in time of their interpretation of Scripture. And then finally, it's the Septuagint that's most often, if not exclusively, relied upon and quoted by the New Testament authors. They knew it, and they trusted it. Why I point this out is because it's the Septuagint that uses the term sons of God rather than children of Israel. And that's a big and important difference. Well, the rest of the Song of Moses goes on to talk about God calling out the nation of Israel to be a people for himself. The song goes on to emphasize the source of the evil and trouble that Israel will experience, that it's the worship of gods other than Yahweh. In verse 39, God's uniqueness and sovereignty is pointed out, saying there are none like him or beside him. The Song of Moses ends in verse 43. Interestingly, most translations that are based on the Masoretic text, such as the NASB and the ASV, say something like, Rejoice, you nations, with his people. However, the ESV, which relies here more on the Septuagint, translates the first part of verse 43 as, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. This is as though Moses' song, as dictated to him by God, was directly addressing the residents of the heavenly realm and those who are considered gods. It makes a big difference. Addressing the adversaries of Yahweh, whom this song refers to as other gods, is how the 70 men who translated the Hebrew text into Greek chose to translate and interpret this passage. Now, for some reason, the ESV doesn't say this in its translation, but if you look at the Septuagint itself on this verse that uh, the ESV says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. The Septuagint actually goes so far as to refer to these gods as sons of God. Here's a word-for-word translation of the first phrase in verse 43 directly from the Septuagint. Well, put into English. Rejoice heavens together him, and worship him all sons of God. The Song of Moses contained in Deuteronomy 32, which was given to the people of Israel as a reminder of what will cause all their future problems, differentiates between sons of God from several other terms contained within the song that refer to some sort of God. Here's a listing of those terms. First, it refers to what is no God but idols. That's in verse 21. Strange gods in verse 16. Foreign gods in verse 12. Gods they have never known and new gods in verse 17. And demons in verse 17. All of these terms seem to be separate from one another. Some of these these may be two different terms for the same kind of God. Like, a foreign god may be the same as a strange or a new god, but clearly there's a difference between the use of the term god, whether it's a new, strange, or foreign god that they've never previously known, and the terms idol and demon. And all of those terms are separate from the term we're looking at here, the sons of God. I'll talk about the concept of the dividing up of nations by Yahweh as mentioned in Deuteronomy 32, more thoroughly in a future podcast that looks specifically at what I call divine geography. But right now, let's look at the sons of God in the book of Job. In the book of Job, the sons of God are mentioned in three separate places, in Job 1.6, 2.1, and 38.7. In all three passages, the Masoretic text uses the language Bene Elohim, or sons of God. However, the Septuagint in two of the passages in Job uses the phrase angeloi tu theu, or angels of God. Job 38.7 in the Septuagint simply says all the angels instead of sons of God. There's no use of the word son in the Septuagint in any of these three passages in Job. Well, this is a case where the translators of the ESV went with the Masoretic text instead of the Septuagint. I don't know why for sure. I wasn't there. 
but it may be because it's thought that the Council of Seventy Hebrew Translators originally only translated the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. The rest of the books of the Old Testament were possibly translated in the 2nd century BC, and so they're not considered by some to be quite as trustworthy as the ones that were originally translated by the Council of 72, or 70. So it just may be that the translators of the ESV look at the reliability of the Septuagint pertaining to Job a little differently than the Pentateuch. Or it may have suited the theology of the translators of the ESV better. Allowing theology to dictate how passages are translated happens all too often, regardless of the translation. Yes, even in the case of the hallowed authorized King James Version of the Bible, in which the king, King James, listed 15 rules for the translators to follow that were according to his own theology. One of my favorite rules that King James spelled out as he uh, subjected himself to the politics of his day was rule number three which stated, quote, The old ecclesiastical words are to be kept, such as the word church is not to be translated as congregation. Well, this was like Joe Biden setting out a list of rules for a bunch of scholars to follow when translating the Bible. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff translators are subjected to in the real world when making these kind of decisions. As the first century A.D. grew closer, there was a growing concern amongst Hebrew religious leaders regarding referring to any spiritual beings as Elohim besides the Most High, thinking that it sends out the wrong message in a religion in which the oneness of God is very much stressed. By the first century, the spiritual leaders had strictly forbidden referring to any spiritual being besides Yahweh in that way. This kind of religious jealousy became even more true after Jesus had came and went. How could anyone besides Yahweh be considered God? Now, don't worry, I'm not going to do it right now, but I'll drop down into the weeds again a little further on how the term sons of God is translated differently in the episode on divine geography that's coming up in a future podcast. So the word son obviously denotes that of being at least thought of as being in the same family as the father, whether that's through creation or natural birth. Uh, the title Son of God in the Old Testament, when it's not used as a comparison, as in the case of Solomon being like a son to God, and where it's dealing with the individual beings, is a designator for beings who were directly created by Yahweh. This includes the angels, this as opposed to being a descendant of someone who was directly created by God. Adam, in this sense, being directly created by God, was a true son of God. He's mentioned as such in the genealogy found in Luke. In Luke 3.38, Adam is referred to as the son of God, because there are no humans who came before him. He was a direct creation of God. This is also the case with the heavenly host. They were created directly by God. No other angel gave birth to them. Now, in the New Testament, I believe the term Son of God is reserved for the same. However, except for the case of Jesus, being a Son of God has nothing to do with natural or physical birth. Rather, the term is reserved for those who God adopts into His family and directly endows with new and eternal life. In Luke chapter 20, verses 35 to 36, Jesus spoke about the status of the elect at the resurrection, that they will be considered the sons of God. Here's what Jesus said, But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 8, verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, he wrote, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Having a new spirit 
being born a second time spiritually, directly of God, qualifies for being called a son or child of God. Of course, just as Yahweh is the one and only unique God, Jesus is the unique Son of God. Even so, Jesus still fits this criteria that I'm talking about. He was conceived and born a human being due to God's direct intervention. I don't know the mechanics of this, but God the Father, through His Holy Spirit, came upon Mary and placed Jesus in the womb of this virgin human girl. Old Testament messianic prophecies such as Psalms 2-7 were appropriate in referring to Jesus as God's Son in this way. This is what Psalms 2-7 says, I'll tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. The meaning I'm applying to the term Son of God here does not mean that we should assume that every heavenly being created by God bears the title Son of God. After all, God also directly created every fish, bird, and animal. And we have no biblical reason to think any of those creatures have or ever will be referred to as sons of God. We similarly have an indication that there are different types of creatures in heaven, like cherubim and seraphim, etc. Perhaps not all creatures in the unseen realm rise to the level of sons of God. Not every angel does. I don't know. It may be a term reserved for those who possess more of the attributes which Yahweh also possesses. At this point, I would be speculating. For now, what we do know is that there are spirit realm beings that are indeed referred to as sons of God. These beings end up playing an important role in the story God tells in the Bible. But for now, we got to move on. So in past podcasts, we've talked about the uniqueness of Yahweh, the reality of heaven and hell, the creation of spiritual beings, and we've just been introduced to one of the orders of those spiritual beings called the sons of God. Next, let's talk about what can be described as a divine council. In the Near East and surrounding areas, the idea of a divine council can be found in the Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, Egyptian, Greek, and Roman cultures. The basic idea is that there were a number of gods with one high god over them all. The high god of the Mesopotamian god's name was Anu. He would meet with his council to address various concerns. The Sumerians call this council the Ukin. Of course, Zeus was the high god of the Greek council of gods. So, this idea of sitting in a council can strike us as fundamentally pagan and can make us uncomfortable and squirm a little when we start noting similarities in the Bible. It can cause us to think that we're dragging God down to a level of mythology. Our discomfort may even provide us with incentive to come up with alternative interpretations of Scripture. This has been the case with many in the past. The fact that all these cultures believed in such a thing as a divine assembly does not mean that we are superimposing the writings of Homer or pagan polytheistic beliefs on the Israelites. Nor does it mean that the biblical authors borrowed from the surrounding pagan cultures when they were describing things pertaining to heaven. Now, we might not like to think so, but I'll tell you what it means. It means that all those surrounding cultures had a view of the truth or reality, but through the lenses of pagan cultures and religions. The Hebrew narrative represents the truth without the lenses, that there are created supernatural beings that go about their business in the heavens, interacting with God just as He planned. But sometimes those beings have been rebellious. Yes, this does sound like Greek mythology, but I believe that's by satanic design. Satan takes the truth, twists it just a little, and deceives the nations with a new altered version. Any cop or con artist will tell you that lies that are closest to the truth are the best lies. Any religion or philosophy that survived for any length of time contains elements of truth. However, the truth is interwoven with lies. And ultimately, those religions based on twisted truth falsehoods lead people down a path of eternal destruction. 
This whole divine council thing may sound scary or shocking if you've never heard of it before. So (laughs) I'll understand if you need to weep and wail or rip your clothing or spit at me and put me out of commune with you and sentence me to hell's fire. At least until the nostalgia-based emotions have subsided and you realize it's all going to be okay. Once reason (laughs) fills in the vacuum once occupied by traditional religious teaching, we can see that we're plainly and clearly told in the Old Testament that gods, or Elohim, who are sometimes referred to as sons of God, make up a divine council or assembly which Yahweh, the Most High God, presides over. We don't know if this divine assembly is made up of all sons of God or only a designated part or number of the sons of God, but the sons of God are included in this divine assembly. Well, let's start looking at them in Scripture. The Psalms are an important source of information regarding the divine assembly. This is Psalms 82. I'm going to read it in its entirety. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of God's, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations." In this passage, the Most High God, Yahweh, Elohim, is seen along with a divine council of other Elohim. Verse 1 again says, God, Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, Elohim. He holds judgment. The same word, Elohim, is used both times. It would not make sense for the Elohim singular to be standing in the midst of himself or even another singular God. So the second Elohim in Psalms 82.1 must be referring to other beings besides Yahweh himself. It's appropriately translated that God is in the midst of what's referred to as a divine council of other gods. Some to protect Judaism and Christianity from polytheism, have looked for alternatives to translating the second Elohim as gods. They interpret the group of Elohim to be humans, such as rulers or judges. Others say that this passage is referring to the Trinity. The divine council, in other words, is made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in their opinion. However, we don't see men referred to as Elohim or counted among the heavenly council from which God sits among in the Old Testament. Later in the passage, these beings are again referred to as Elohim by Elohim, Yahweh, even sons of the Most High God. But then they're told that they will die like men. Here's that scripture again. This is God speaking here. Psalms 82, 6-7. I said, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die, and fall like any prince. They're clearly gods being contrasted to humans. If they were men, why would they have been told that they'll die like men? Of course humans will all die as humans do. That literally goes without saying. The fact is, it's presupposed that these beings, these gods, originally believed that they were immortal. They're being put on notice by the Most High God, Yahweh, that they are not. We also know that the biblical authors had the ability to tell the difference between important men, human being men, and angelic beings. Why would they call men gods when they had other terms used for humans available? 
For example, in Isaiah 24:21, speaking of the future day of the Lord, which will come at the end of this age, it says this, On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. The host of heaven and the kings of the earth clearly represent two different groups of beings, and the biblical authors knew how to articulate the difference. Now, turn into the Trinity. If this council represents the Trinity, as some assert, it appears that God is chastising other members of the Trinity for misbehaving. If this were true, then one member of the Trinity would be saying to the other two that they were going to end up dying like humans do. That seems very untrinity-like and very unlikely. Remember, although there's what sounds like a pantheon of gods, or Elohim, that Yahweh is a part of, Yahweh is the only uncreated one among them. He is unique and the greatest or most high among them. It is His divine counsel to rule over. If you recall, when we read there are no other gods besides Yahweh, it's not that God exists alone in the spirit realm or is considered the only Elohim. Far from it. It's that He is unique and exists alone outside all created realms, both physical and spiritual. There are none besides him who can make that same claim. The following psalm, which refers to the assembly or council of holy ones, this divine council, declares Yahweh's uniqueness, while at the same time repeatedly proclaiming that he is not alone in the heavens. This is Psalms 89, verses 5 to 8. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? There's those who claim that this passage and others are only referring to physical things in creation, that this psalm is stating that God is greater than anything in creation, the stars, the sun, the moon, and everything under heaven. They completely miss the point that this is talking about an assembly of spectacular heavenly beings which surround God. Beings that are referred to as holy ones, or saints in this passage, and Elohim elsewhere. It's reminiscent of another psalm addressed to and concerning heavenly beings. This is Psalms 29, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. If these psalms are not referring to actual spectacular heavenly beings, they're meaningless and don't amount to anything like praise. To bring these passages down to earth or even outer space is to disrespect God. For example, to say that heaven in this passage only refers to the place that the planets are and the sky is, and not the realm in which spiritual beings exist, is to make a comparison between God and planets, or birds in the sky. It'd be like saying, Oh, what great rock in outer space, or bird, or winged creature in the sky can be compared to the Lord. And if heaven is only a metaphor for the mind of God, that'd be like saying, Oh God, in your mind there is no one who compares to you. In your imagination there are none like you. Who among the made-up beings of your thought processes is like you? Well, absurd. Well, these passages are, of course, packed with praise for our worthy God. But for our purposes, the takeaway here in these passages is that there is a divine council. They're made up of heavenly beings, and none of them can compare to the Most High God, Yahweh. Well, let's talk about the divine counsel as found in the book of Job. First, 
I got to acknowledge that some believe the book of Job to be an allegory and not a historical account of an actual sequence of events. Well, that's possible, although nothing in Scripture explicitly tells us this. In fact, Ezekiel in the Old Testament and James in the New Testament appear to think that Job was a real guy. Both James and Ezekiel used Job as a real-life example of what we can look to. You can read about what they said in Ezekiel 14.14 and James 5.11. Well, the book of Job itself gives specific details regarding people and locations. We know those locations to be real. Calling Scripture allegory because of the fantastic story departs from our experience today is a slippery slope. If Job is an allegory, is the story of Jonah? What about Samson or Gideon? Was David real, and if he was, did he really kill a giant, or was that just an allegorical story? We again must superimpose our age of reason logic to default to the assumption that the story of Job is an allegory. Yet, if it's true that the book of Job is allegory, we still have no reason to believe that it's based on fanciful or impossible fictions. Just as the situations Job is subjected to are all possible, and things like them have happened all through human history, so we must assume that the heavenly narrative is equally realistically possible. We have no reason to believe otherwise. As for what happens in the heavens in the story of Job, we have to totally be reliant on revelation and not our own experience. But God is a God of truth, not made-up fantasy. So, in the end, for our purposes here, it doesn't matter if the story is allegory, so long as the story does not depart from the components or concepts contained in the story that do exist in reality. In the book of Job, we read the story of the sons of God who come to present themselves or stand in an assembly before Yahweh. We've just discussed the sons of God and the scripture which informs us that there is a group of heavenly beings who make up a divine assembly or council. Well, what about the other attendee? In the different meetings with God recorded in Job, Satan also shows up. Satan, rather than a proper name, can simply be translated as the accuser. Well, there may be more than one who can accuse in the heavenlies, so technically, more than one spirit being could be referred to as Satan. However, my suspicion is that this Satan is the Nakash, the serpent of Genesis. Because as you'll hear in a later podcast, part of the Nakash's sentence for rebelling in the garden was that he was removed from his heavenly position to spend his days on the earth. And the earth is exactly where we see this particular accuser, or Satan, we read of in Job, come from. Listen to Job, chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The rest of the story of Job, we read of the divine assembly coming together two more times. But now let's turn to the book of 1 Kings. Here is found one of the more earth-shaking, paradigm-rattling stories for people to deal with regarding the divine counsel idea. In the following passage, the prophet Micaiah tells us that Yahweh had determined that Israel's king, Ahab, needed to die at a place called Ramoth-Gilead. Yahweh, of course knowing, approving, even authoring what happened ahead of time, appears to have entered into a discussion and taken suggestions from the divine council. He ends up accepting one of the suggestions and sends out a spirit to enact the plan. Here's what Micaiah told Ahaz he saw. Now this is Micaiah speaking. Therefore, Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. 
Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he, God, said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. That's found in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 to 23. Well, this is a mind-blowing account of how God appears to, at least sometimes, conduct business in the heavenly realm. Rather than only issuing edicts from His throne, He appears to respectfully interact with His creation. He does so by soliciting their input and allows for volunteers to step forward. We don't have time to go down this rabbit trail now, but this all still fits nicely with the fact that God is sovereign and doesn't need anyone's help or suggestions. The divine counsel can be observed in the book of Daniel. Daniel had a vision of heaven in which there was not just one throne, but thrones, plural. Amidst the thrones, like we saw in Psalm 82, while a million supernatural beings attended him and more than a hundred million others look on, the Most High Yahweh takes his place among what's called the court. Here's that scripture. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from him before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. That's from Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. These thrones were not provided simply to give Yahweh a choice of where to sit. These were thrones placed for others who held positions of authority to sit while in the presence of the king. Now let's talk about Isaiah. The Isaiah 14 passage is, pro- is a prophecy against the king of Babylon. The passage draws on what was probably well-known imagery of the day, that of associating the king with the planet Venus, the bright morning star. So, Daystar was translated as Lucifer in the Latin Vulgate. Lucifer has been turned into a proper name which, right or wrong, is associated with Satan. It's not important here, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the section regarding the rebellions of the heavenly beings, but for now, there is good reason to believe that the king of Babylon referred to does serve as a symbol for Lucifer or Satan and his puppet Antichrist, and what his ultimate demise will be one day. Here's a portion of that passage. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low! You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly, in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's found in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Whether it's Lucifer or the king of Babylon involved here, we read that his desire was or is to sit on the Mount of Assembly, where the divine council meets, and make himself like the Most High, who presides over the council. Whether this is talking about a human antichrist or a spiritual being, the point here is that this prophecy acknowledged the existence of the stars of God, who are spiritual beings, and the Mount of Assembly. In the ancient world, mountains were thought of as where the gods hang out, and stars were thought to be heavenly beings. As a teaser as to what's to come, as you'll hear in future podcasts regarding the impact Jesus had in the spirit realm during his first coming, what the king of Babylon aspires to do in this Isaiah passage is what Jesus did accomplish.
Jesus literally ascended the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north when he ascended the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was shrouded in the clouds. He was declared by God to be his own Son, making Jesus like the Most High and placing him far above the stars or angels of God. Satan and his Antichrist one day can only dream of such a thing. Now, Baal was known to be a god associated with clouds. This was another satanic ripoff of the truth. Why I say this is because the biblical authors also depicted Yahweh as the cloud rider god. He is the one who is depicted numerous times in the Old Testament as dwelling among the clouds. He led Israel by a pillar of cloud during the day. Listen to this psalm. This is Psalm 104, 1-4. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers of flaming fire. Yahweh was known as the cloud rider. To say that you will ascend above the clouds is to say that you will outrank the Most High God. This is part of what ticked off the Pharisees so bad when Jesus told them that He would be coming on the clouds. You see, Jesus is also depicted in Scripture as being a cloud rider. Like father, like son, I guess. When He was questioned as to whether or not He's the Messiah, here is Jesus' answer. This is found in Mark chapter 14, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The book of Daniel also depicts Jesus as one day coming on the clouds. Well, we also see evidence of the divine counsel in the book of Revelation. It's there we read about 24 what's called elders sitting around the throne of God in heaven. This is Revelation 4, verses 4 to 5. Around the throne there were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders. They were clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Many interpreters of the book of Revelation attempt to assign identity to this group of elders. Whether or not any of them, these interpretations are correct, the assembly of elders witnessed by John, as recorded in Revelation, is consistent with the divine counsel assembly idea found in the Old Testament. It's my belief that this is an angelic group of heavenly witnesses that have seen God's entire story unfold. They've been there since God said, let there be light, and are uniquely qualified to provide their testimony as to the greatness of the one who sits on the throne in heaven. They've seen it all and know the wisdom of God behind everything that's happened. Well, in conclusion, there's much we don't know about this divine assembly. Does it include every heavenly being, or is it made up exclusively of those who are referred to as Elohim? Are all Elohim referred to as sons of God? How many of them are there on the council? How often does it meet? At this point in my studies, I don't know, and I don't intend on forcing answers. Any further answers will be from further study of the scriptures. For now, what I think we do know is that the authors of the Old Testament convey to us that there exists more than one Elohim, while at the same time pointing out that Yahweh is the unique creator and he is over all the rest. He alone is infinite, perfect, transcendent, preexistent, omnipotent, and omniscient. Just like he chose to sit and talk with Abraham, and like he regularly met and spoke with Moses, the Old Testament informs us that God interacts with His unseen realm, divine counsel, or assembly, which He presides over. He asks them questions, takes their suggestions, and gives them assignments. He chastises and punishes them. The assembly is made up of, at least in part, those He refers to as His sons. They've also been called elders. At least 24 of them have been seen sitting on thrones in the presence of God's own throne in heaven. So, 
What's the takeaway regarding the divine assembly? What's the so what if what I am saying is true? The answer to that is probably different for each of you listening to this. If you find yourself resistive to what you've just heard here, please ask yourself, why is that? What difference does it make to you if what you just heard is true? Does it change something in how you view God? I can only give you the so what for me. I believe the material I just covered gives me a more accurate picture of God's universe and how He operates. And as a truth seeker, I'm extremely interested in an accurate picture of how He operates. Secondly, I strive to understand the true meaning of Scripture. These scriptures that I've discussed today are often neglected and misinterpreted to try and protect God's oneness or uniqueness or make us feel more comfortable. But God does not need anyone to protect His uniqueness. Scripture proclaims it. Knowing about the scope of the heavenly realm, that it is a very active place with millions of inhabitants, many of whom are called sons of God, helps to put myself into perspective. Scriptures are packed with references about the unseen realm. God's story is even bigger than what I originally thought, and Jesus is the star of an even bigger divine drama than I ever imagined. I've been so much as asked, what does all this have to do with the gospel? Well, keep listening to this series and you'll see. But for starters, Jesus is the Son of God in both the earthly and the heavenly realm. He's been placed in authority over all beings in both realms. You say you want to know Jesus? Then you'll want to know what He accomplished in the spirit realm. Among the other things you may know about, what He did was nothing short of reclaiming the Gentile nations for His Father, Yahweh. We'll start into that subject next time. Now, I know there may be a lot of what sounds like big ideas or at least new things to think about for many of you. If that's the case and you have questions, please send me an email and ask them. I'll do my best to answer and I promise not to take your questions as some sort of a challenge that I don't know what I'm talking about. I have experience with people becoming upset with this subject matter. And chances are that others have the same questions as you do. Please take the time to look up the references I gave and look at the scripture for yourself. Well, until next time, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at, at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.